Open your Bibles to Job chapter 2. That's John, Paul, Connie Logston are in our congregation, in our church family. Uh, they're going to tell you their story over the next few weeks. Uh, God bless them. They're going to a really painful place uh, for the sake of um, these messages. So uh, uh, encourage them when you see them. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The sermon series we're beginning today is entitled, This Too Shall Last. This Too Shall Last. It's sort of a play on words with the old phrase that's probably more familiar to you. People often say what? This too shall pass. We say that uh, typically when we are in a situation that we hope will pass soon or, or quickly. It's our way of comforting ourselves when we are in a circumstance that is testing us or trying us or anything that brings pain. Uh, we want to think that it's not going to last very long. We want every problem to be the equivalent of a 24-hour virus. We want to have one bad night, but tomorrow everything starts getting back to normal. That's just kind of how we are. And so that is why this too shall pass becomes a phrase that we use with such frequency. I've said it, and perhaps you've said it. A lot of people think it comes from the Bible. It doesn't. That's not in the Bible. The Bible will say things like, and it came to pass, but that's not the same thing as saying this too shall pass. Abraham Lincoln said it once in one of his speeches, but when he said it, he said he was quoting somebody else. So Abraham Lincoln didn't make it up. The Jewish rabbis say that it originates with King Solomon. I don't believe it, but I'll tell you the story anyway. The Jewish rabbis say that King Solomon, Solomon the Wise, was going to test a student who was becoming prideful. And so he challenged the student to go out and create a, a, a ring that would have the power, whoever would wear it, the ring would have the power to make a sad person happy or a happy person sad. It would have dual power to make a sad person happy or a happy person sad. Obviously, the student went away, came back and said, I can't do it. That's impossible. That would be a power that, that would be you know, uh, inconceivable for human beings. The power to make a sad person happy and a happy person sad, that would not exist. So Solomon, to prove his point and to uh, humble the student and demonstrate his own wisdom, Solomon went out and created a ring, and he inscribed inside the words, this too shall pass. I don't really think that's what happened, y'all. But I think it's interesting the way that story is told and the way it demonstrates sort of the, the double edge of that saying. It'll make a sad person happy for sure. Because if you're in circumstances of sadness to be told, this too shall pass, that hopefully will encourage you. This is going to pass you by. But at the same time, it's the power to make a happy person sad. And see, this is what we forget. Every moment comes to pass. It's not just the... The, the suffering moments that are going to pass, your happy moments pass too, and they pass just as quickly. Can I just, you know, spoiler alert, time passes. Time passes. Whether you're happy or whether you're sad, time passes. There are moments of your life that you wish could just last forever. Have you ever just been in a season of life and you know it's good whether you realize that your children are young or your children are in just a very, very happy phase or you begin to realize that your children are getting older and don't have a lot more time and you just you want to drag your feet and make it last longer because they say time flies when you're having fun and it does. I mean, does it not? You ever been in a party or a wedding reception, you're dancing, you look at your watch, and my goodness, we've been here three hours and it just seems to fly by. It just flies by. 
But in a moment of suffering, grief, have you ever spent a single night in the hospital? A night in the hospital lasts forever. You can't sleep. If you sleep, they'll come in and wake you up to give you a sleeping pill. I mean, they will wake you up. You cannot sleep, and all you can do is stare at that clock at the end of the bed, and the hands never move. It just lasts forever. So understand, time passes, and in time uh, in our lives, there is no pause. Uh, you can't push a button and, and make it all stand still. You can't rewind. You can't fast forward. Uh, every moment comes to pass. The problem with us very often, and, and I would say maybe especially those of us who are people of faith, our, our problem is when we are in difficult times, the reason why we, you know, we like to think you know, this too shall pass, the reason why we comfort ourselves in that way is because for the most part, even as believers, maybe especially as believers, we are not well prepared to suffer. And I don't understand that. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. But somehow, we still are not prepared for it. We want every problem to come in and expire at midnight. We want all symptoms to disappear within 24 hours. That's just how we are. And when the clouds begin to form, and the storm comes, and the rain begins to fall, and the rain continues to pour, we often don't know what to do. Can I just put one word of warning, and this will begin this series. Beware of thinking that you only need to be faithful for a short time, and after that, your problems will simply fade away. That's how we are. That's how we are. If we get sick, we want to pray to God. We want God to heal us instantly. And if God does not heal us instantly, then we're mad at God. God, why is this happening to me? We really don't know how to continue to live as people of faith when we also must live with adversity. You have to understand that sooner or later, a problem is going to move into your house and it's not going to leave. Sooner or later, I'm telling you, the trouble is going to come and the trouble is going to stay. You say, how long, Pastor Tim? How long? I don't know, but long. And you need to know how to continue to live as a child of faith, as a son, as a daughter of the Lord, as a follower of Jesus when your life gets hard. Which brings us to uh, Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2. If you're really wondering like why, how, how are we supposed to live with suffering, then like a lot of people all through the ages, we're going to go ask Job because he knows something about it. We're going to pick up in Job chapter 2. Verse 1, I'm assuming you probably know something about the book of Job. If not, I encourage you to read the book of Job. Uh, it is amazing. Job chapter 2, verse 1. One day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, you notice my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil, and he's maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he'll curse you to your face. All right. 
Do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. If y'all know the story, Job chapter 2 comes after Job chapter 1. Absolutely. And in Job chapter 1, Job has his, his first test. Now, if you're reading through the book of Job, you know something that Job doesn't know. And it really is vital information. In the book of Job, Job suffers, but Job doesn't understand where his suffering comes from, why he's suffering. So his friends line up, they want to explain it. So Job's friends come in, they all got explanations, and I'm telling you, the only thing they managed to do is make everything worse. A man who has suffered more than any other person in all of history, his friends show up to comfort him, and they make everything worse. Finally, Job is saying, I wish you guys would just stop talking, stop talking. If anybody's going to explain my suffering to me, it's going to be God. I want to talk to God himself. I want God to come down. I want God to come. I want God to answer me. That's... The book of Job. But the thing that you and I know that Job doesn't know, that none of the friends know, is that Job has an enemy. Job has an enemy. Job has no idea what you and I know by reading chapters 1 and 2. That there's an enemy named Satan who himself would would kill Job, but the Lord won't let Satan kill Job. I mean, the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy everything he can. Job has an enemy. You have an enemy, too. We rarely think about that. I try to remind you all the time because those of us who don't understand that the devil roams to and fro seeking whom he may devour, when we forget that, we just become a sitting duck for him. So we understand that Job has an enemy. We understand that there's a whole lot going on here behind the scenes. There is this heavenly scene that you and I understand that Job can't possibly understand. So his suffering has Everything to do with the work of Satan. We understand that by reading this. We also understand a little bit of the backstory there that Job and uh, that, that God and Satan have a kind of conversation, which is sort of mind blowing. It seems like God has an opportunity. I personally don't understand why, like when when Satan came by, why God didn't just you know crush him like a bug on the spot, but He doesn't. They they converse. Satan is the accuser, right? And all he does is accuse. All he does is lie. He accuses people right here on the spot before God. It's all he does, and it's what he was doing back then. He just says, you know what, God? All these people out there that love you and worship you and serve you, they only do it because you bless them. They only do it because you protect them. But if you took all the presents away, if you took the blessings and the protection away, they would curse you to your face. They don't actually love you. They don't actually fear you. They don't worship you. They just sort of hang around you because you let the blessings fall on them. But take it away. Take it all away. See what happens. You see, there's kind of only one way to test that. And so Job becomes uh, the subject. God says, Job, he's faithful. 
He's a man of integrity. Satan says, let me get at him. So Satan is allowed to go after Job. This is test number one. And in test number one, Job and his wife lose everything. Everything. Satan takes everything. All of their wealth, and they were wealthy. All of their livestock, all of their employees, even their employees. And in one single day, in one single moment, all their children, gone. Everything, gone. Now, Job passes the test with flying colors. In Job chapter 2, the, the second chapter, I mean, Job has come through that first test in one piece. And it's amazing. Read the last words of chapter 1. Job speaks. He says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, the scripture said, Job didn't sin. He did not sin by blaming God. He did not sin. Job passes the test with flying colors. I mean, go, Job. That's amazing. Woohoo! And what is his reward for having withstood this awesome, devastating test from Satan? I mean, what is his reward for all of that? Satan gets to come back and smack him again. That's chapter two. And I know you're thinking, that's not fair. That's crazy. Why does it work that way? Well, again, I'm trying in many, many ways to prepare you for your own life because sooner or later, sooner or later, you're going to face trouble like this. And I don't want you at that time to think that something strange is happening to you. I don't want you to think that you've been singled out because you haven't been singled out. This is just what life permits. Even the life of faith, even following Jesus, understand Trouble may come in waves. I mean, this is how trouble works. I don't know why. I just can tell you that this is how it is. It's how it was for Job. It's how it's going to be for you. If your water heater goes out, do you know what? Your dishwasher's next. If you replace one appliance, you're about to replace them all because trouble comes in waves. That's just how it happens. You ever had the stomachvirus in your house? Your daughter brings it home, your son gets it, your husband gets it, you get it. You think, man, I'm glad that's over. And then it starts going through the family again. You understand? Trouble comes in waves. Problems come in clusters or like grapes. And that's just how it works. I don't understand it. I just don't. I just know that this is exactly how life is. It's how it was for Job. You would think that after you've lost everything, I mean, after you've buried all of your children, after you've lost all of your wealth, that you couldn't possibly have a skin disease. You would think that if you have cancer, you shouldn't also have to battle migraines and the heartbreak of psoriasis, but I'm telling you, that's just how it is. For one thing, understand, you have a devil, an enemy, and he does not play fair. He loves to come at you like this. The devil doesn't usually send a shark to devour you in one bite. He will send a thousand minnows, and they will just simply gnaw you to pieces. This is how the devil works. Trouble comes in waves, and sometimes adversity comes to your house, and it does not leave. Most of the time in our lives, especially when we're young, problems come, but they don't last. Hard times don't last, you know? You hated Algebra 2. You, you, all you could do to pass Algebra 2, but you know what? Eventually the semester's over and you get to walk out of that class and never walk back in. I mean, this is how life is. 
when you're young, most of the time, whatever you have, you're going to go to the doctor. If you even have to go to the doctor, you're going to get better. Everything gets back to normal. You fall off your bike, you break your arm, you wear a cast for six weeks, your friends sign it, you get to cast off your arms back to normal. I mean, that's just how we expect life to work. Until the day, that's not how it works. Until the day we get a diagnosis and we understand this is not a 24-hour bug. The day that you pray and you pray and you pray, and then as it turns out, that pain that you're living with is not going to be taken away from you. This is going to be your new normal. There's no getting back to normal. There's no getting back to how it was before. This is how it is now from now on. Sometimes trouble comes and it doesn't leave. Sometimes the storm gathers and it rains and I'm telling you, it just continues to rain. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. There should be no surprise in any of this, but we continue to be surprised. We continue to think that something out of the ordinary is happening, that, that we've been singled out, that God has forsaken us, that God has somehow abandoned us, that God is angry with us. And I'm telling you, it's raining on you today because sooner or later it rains on everybody. The trouble comes in waves and sometimes adversity is just going to come and move in with you. The thing about Job is that we rarely think about his wife. How she lost everything too. You know that? Like chapter one, she lost all of her wealth too. She buried all of her children too. Mrs. We don't even know her name. Mrs. Job has been through all of it just like Job. And, and in chapter two, it's Job who is afflicted now with, with sores from head to foot because understand, the devil will attack your body to get to your soul. And so Job is afflicted in his flesh, in his body. His health is taken because the devil said, yeah, you know, uh, you know people go through a lot, but if you attack their body, if you take away their health, so this time the test is physical and it is brutal. You have to read a little bit deeper into Job because he comes back later and talks about this period in his life. This is not some sort of you know, serious case of the measles. These are boils, these are giant open sores that itch and run and scab over and break open. From head to foot, there's no place on Job's body that isn't broken out. The, the sores begin to open and ooze with pus. The scripture says that. The scripture says pus, y'all. The flies come. The maggots infest the sores. The sores are infected. The sores ooze. The sores itch. The sores ache. Job bleeds. Job takes a piece of pottery and just simply scrapes at the scabs because of the pain, because of the itching, because of the misery. Understand, it's not Job's wife who has the sores, but it's Job's wife who in this moment is the caregiver. And I just want to point that out. Because some of you have been in that situation. You've been the caregiver for somebody that you love and you've watched them suffer. And I know that the pain isn't physical. It's not the same pain, but it is a deep kind of anguish when you watch somebody that you love suffer. And when you're the one who has to take care of them. And when there's not really much you can do for them. Caregivers have an altogether different 
kind of suffering. And uh, my heart goes out to him. Mrs. Job is desperate. And Mrs. Job is empty. And by the time she finally opens her mouth and speaks, I think we can all agree she's at least a quart low on encouragement. I mean, what she says to her husband is harsh. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Verse 9, curse God and die. This is something of her theology here. She's just thinking, you know, it just do whatever it takes to make God so angry. He might strike you with lightning and just kill you on the spot because, honestly, death is better. That's what she's saying. Like, it would just be better to die. It would be better if God, if you could just make him angry and, and have God kill you, and that way that would be better than even 15 more minutes of this. She's done. She's empty, and her heart is broken for her husband. Just curse God and die. Let's get this over with. Notice what Job says, because it's actually amazing. He's alarmed. It's, it's dramatic. Verse 10, Job replies, you talk like a foolish woman. You talk like a fool. In the Hebrew, Job, the book is written in the Hebrew language, of course. In the Hebrew language, there are at least five words Five words that are all different, but the only word we have in English to translate would be fool. And so it gets confusing because, as I say, in the Old Testament, that word has a lot of nuance. There's a Hebrew word for fool that really just means like a silly person, like you're being ridiculous, you're crazy, you're goofy. You know, it's that sort of thing. It's almost playful. There's, there's that use of fool. That's, that's the first one. And they increase in intensity. By the time you get to that fifth word for fool, it is a very startling, astonishing word that, that, that implies that, that you're not just a fool. You don't think there's a God. It's that verse that says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This, this use of the word fool is, is dramatic. It's it's, it's, it's brutal. And this is the word that Job uses here for his wife. He's not saying, woman, you're silly. Woman, you're just tired. He is saying, woman, you are talking like somebody that doesn't even believe in God. You are talking like a person who doesn't just not believe. You're a person who is belligerent in your non-belief. You're talking like a fool. You understand? It's a very, very strong, very dramatic word that that Job is using here, but he's using it for a reason. He's saying, I don't even know who you are anymore. I don't understand why you would talk like that. You're talking like somebody who doesn't even believe there's a God. You're talking like somebody who has no hope. And see, that's the thing. It's the thing about Job's wife, and honestly, it's the thing about us. In your trials, don't give Satan anything that he doesn't have the power to take. Now, obviously Satan can get at us and Satan can steal, kill, and destroy a lot in our lives. He'd take everything if he could. He is limited in his power. Job demonstrates that. The, the Lord continues to keep him on a leash. But understand, he would steal everything that he, that, that he can. He will take everything that he can from you. He will destroy everything that he can. The problem is you can't just start giving him stuff. But this is what we do. There are certain things that he can't touch. He can't touch your faith. He can't. He can't touch the hope that Christ puts in you. He cannot possibly take your joy. He can't steal your joy. The only way he can win those things is if you just surrender them, if you give them over. Don't give Satan anything that he doesn't have the power to take. 
And I think this is what Job is saying to his wife here. Why are you talking like that? You're talking like somebody who doesn't have faith. You're talking like somebody who doesn't have hope. You're talking like someone who has no source of joy. You're talking like a fool. I know that some of us in this room have suffered hardship and pain that the rest of us may never know. But I'm just begging you, in your suffering, in your pain, in your hardship, do not become a person that you never really intended to be. Don't become a different kind of person. The devil may somehow rob you of your health, but he should not rob you of your faith. The devil may rob you of your physical comfort every single day, but you must not give up your hope. You understand? There are things that he cannot touch, things that come from Christ, things that are in the Holy Spirit. He can't steal these things from you, so for the Lord's sake, please don't give them up. Don't give them to him. Don't give Satan anything he doesn't already have the power to take. You talk like a fool, Job says to his wife. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Should we accept only good things and never anything bad? What's Job saying there? Is he saying that from God's own hand, God would give us bad things? I don't think that's what he's saying, honestly. Because Jesus says, if you, you fathers, earthly fathers, sinners that you are, know how to give your children good things, you know, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to bless you? How much more does he give you the Holy Spirit and everything else? You know, you being an earthly father, if, if your child asked you for bread, would you, would you give him a serpent? You understand? So I don't think that the scripture here is teaching that God's going to give you, you know, a stone when you ask for bread. I don't think God's going to do that. I don't think that's what Job is saying here either. But this is what I think Job is saying, and I think it's something you and I really, really need to consider. Job and his wife did nothing to deserve all their suffering, just like they did nothing to deserve all their blessings. Should we accept only good things? See, Job's speaking with quite a lot of wisdom here because he understands something. He understands that they didn't deserve the blessings either. They don't deserve the suffering. The, the book of Job goes out of its way over and over to say, in all this, Job did nothing wrong. In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. In all of this, Job does not sin by blaming God. In all of this, Job said nothing wrong. I mean, he's done nothing to deserve all of his suffering, but he also did nothing to deserve all the blessings. Interesting. How good God is to you? And God's really, I, I know, I know, you can look around and see somebody that seems to have more than you have, but can you just stop and for a moment be sober enough to, to admit that God's been really, really good to you? Me too. You never stop to consider the mystery of that. Why is he so good to you? Like, why? Why are you so blessed? Because it's so funny, because like you live your life with all of these blessings and you rarely even stop to consider the mystery of that. Why is God blessing you so? You don't deserve any of this. Maybe you don't question because you want to think that you do. Like maybe you want to think that the reason your kids are so fine is because you're such a good mama. Really? I mean, you, you really do have good kids, but you really think, I mean, like most of the time, let's be honest, you are watching The prices Right. Right, let's just be honest. 
You know, you have a gorgeous house and you think, yeah, but I work. Yeah, but do you really think that you deserve that more than, you know, anybody else? I mean, you ever just stop and, and ask God, why? Why are you so good to me? Why have you blessed me so? Because the thing is, I mean, the first time, I mean, the very first time you get a hangnail, you're like, God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, it's just amazing what it takes to make you mad at God. You know, clouds up and rains on your wedding, and you're like, why, why, why is it raining on my wedding? Well, clouds. I mean, you know, God is just so good to you, and you turn so quickly and demand an answer. Why? Why is this happening? Why must I have this problem? Why must I suffer? But I just want to just encourage you that the mystery goes much deeper than that. It's a mystery of why he's so good to you in the first place. I mean, God is so good to me, and I don't deserve, I, I don't deserve any of it. Man, just to have the wife that I have, I mean, y'all know, y'all have met her, y'all met me, y'all, we can just all say amen, I don't deserve her. She's amazing. My wife is just so amazing. I don't know why she loves me. The joke's on her, y'all. I mean, I don't know. I'm being honest, I, I don't know. She is such a good wife. I'm not a good husband. I understand that. You know, we have a house in the woods. I just don't know why we, we get to live. I mean, like right now, we got these big turkey buzzards that have moved into our house, and it's kind of a problem. Y'all, y'all know about them? Like they're giant, and our house sits in the woods, and we got these two dormers. But right now, we got like a buzzard, like each of them on a dormer. Our house is like, like the Adams family in a house. Because, I mean, these birds are giant. They're like, like, it looks like a man in a bird suit up there. I mean, I'm not kidding, y'all. And they won't leave. They just, like, sit up there on top of our house. And it's driving my wife crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid she's going to move if I don't do something. But what do I do? Uh, like, the other day, she was eating a sandwich on the back porch, and they were looking over the house at her like this, you know. It's like, I, and, and also, like, we Googled this. It, it, it's called whitewashing. I'm sorry, y'all, I'm off the sermon now. They, they poop on their own feet, and then they walk around to mark their territory. And they have walked all over our back porch when we're not home. Like, I don't know what they're telling us, y'all. I mean, yeah. But, like, their, their feet prints are as big as my hand, you know, pooping and walking on our back porch, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we live in the woods, and we have turkeys in the backyard, and foxes and coyotes that sing at night, and it is just all so beautiful. It's just, it's just so beautiful, you know, to come home to my wife and to, to, to live in our house in the woods with the trees and the birds, and oh, gosh, we have such a son. He's just such a good kid. I don't know why he's a good kid, y'all. It, we weren't good parents. He raised himself. He just did. He was that kid that would put himself in time out. And I'm like, okay, you know. And he, was just, he was just a really, really good kid. And I don't deserve any of this. And if God never gives me anything else or does anything else for me, I am of all men who've ever lived most blessed. I'm just so blessed. Do you understand? I'm serious. If he never does anything for me, or if I lost it all tomorrow, 
I've still been so blessed. And so in those moments when you're tempted to get angry at God and point your finger at him and demand an answer as to why you're having this problem, stop, slow your roll, and just remember, he's been so good to you, so very good to you, and you didn't deserve any of that, and I didn't either. It's just grace and the mystery of his providence. Job and his wife, they didn't do anything to deserve all their suffering. They didn't do anything to deserve all their blessings either. It's just the mystery of God's providence and the mystery of our lives. So quickly, uh, a couple of lessons from the book of Job. As you know, if you know the book at all, Job's friends show up. At first, they're good. They don't say anything, and that's good. That's good because they don't know what to say, and there's nothing to say. And if you ever tried to you know, be with somebody who's suffering, it's, it's hard to know what to say. And so just a little bit of advice. It comes from the book of Job. Like when you don't know what to say, don't say anything because whatever you try to say is going to come out dumb. And Job's friends demonstrate that. I mean, they manage to talk and try to explain his suffering. Like Job wants to know why, and they think they're going to tell him. And they don't know. They do not know. They were better off when they just showed up and kept their mouths closed. Job just keeps saying, I wish you guys would shut up. I wish you guys would quit talking. Y'all don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that your answers aren't right. It's not enough. And it goes on, y'all. It goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. And Job says, just stop talking. The only person who can answer me is God. And I want God to show up. I want God to come. I want to hear from God. I want the Lord to come, and I want him to answer me. And so guess what? He comes. Like the Lord shows up. That's the book of Job. And it's just so amazing. He shows up like in chapter 38, 39, 40. Like he he shows up like 40 chapters later. God comes and God says, you got questions? You better buckle up, buddy. And then God begins to unload on Job. And it is glorious. I mean, I know it sounds frightening. It is. God answers Job from out of a tornado, the scripture says, from out of a whirlwind. And God says, you got questions for me? How about I got some questions for you? And all that the Lord does is begin to ask Job questions. And the Lord flattens Job with questions. See, Job thought that he knew a lot about life. There were just these outlying questions about suffering. And Job just thought, I need an answer to this one question. And God said, well, while we're asking questions, I've got a few. And then the Lord lets it fly. It's really pretty amazing. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who stretched out the canopy of the heavens? What supports its foundations? Uh, Who called out all the morning stars as they sang together and shouted for joy? Who put the sea inside of its boundaries? It's just amazing. And on and on God goes. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear? Have you ever caused the sun to rise? As a matter of fact, Job, do you even know when the where the darkness goes when the light appears? If you're not the answer to that, I'll wait for it. That's what I thought. Do you even know where the rain comes from? Have you ever been to the place where there is the storehouse for the hail and the snow? Job, can you just point your finger and direct the lightning where to flash? Because if you can, I'd like to see that. 
That's what I thought. Are you the one that lifted the eagles up on their wings? Are you the one that taught the young hawks how to fly? Did you let the dogs out? Are you the one that let the dogs out? I am dying to know, Job. Are you the one? Are you the one who causes the clouds to gather? Are you the one that causes the plants to grow? I mean, Job, and on and on and on the Lord goes. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Now, at the end of all that, Job understands something and nothing. I'm like, what Job thought he knew, he now realizes he didn't know anything. All God does is just compound the mystery. Just reveal to Job that there is so much he doesn't know, so much he can never know. The universe itself that God understands and controls, it is infinitely complex. I did a wedding yesterday in Nicholasville, Kentucky. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Outdoor wedding at 4.30. And at 4.15, the clouds opened up and rained. I mean, it was, oh my goodness. It was horrible. They had worked all day long to make all the decorations. And it was beautiful. And in one moment, this giant gust of wind came and destroyed it. Oh my goodness. It was just horrible. And somebody said, Pastor, why? Why is this happening? Why is it happening at wedding time? Why is this happening? And again, clouds. I mean, you know, it's, it, it rained on their wedding because it rained on, you know, all of Nicholasville. It just, it, it just rained. But, but, you know, more than that, y'all know how the world works? Y'all know anything about weather at all? Because I don't. I just know enough to know that if you want to talk about why it rained in Nicholasville yesterday at 417, you'd have to talk about like butterflies flapping their wings in Argentina three months ago. Because that is how complicated and complex creation is. And you and I don't understand that, but God does. And so you want to know the answer to why this little bitty thing? And God is just like, you know, you know, there is no way that you could possibly absorb and understand and fathom the, the way the universe works. God knows, but you and I don't know. And here's what Job teaches us. You can never sit where God sits. You can never see what God sees. And so you're never going to know what he knows. It's not that he's withholding information. You just can't possibly fathom the irreducible complexity of all that God masters and provides for. You can't understand it. And can I just tell you something else? If I were to answer your question about your suffering, if I were to just answer you, say, Pastor Tim, why? Why did my child have to die? And I'd say, well, I'll tell you why. And I'd give you the answer. It would not help. It would not help. I mean, if I could tell you why that happened to you, I would tell you, and it wouldn't do anything about your pain that would not ease your suffering at all. Because you're asking a logical question, but suffering and pain are not logical. Honestly, the gospel itself is sort of foreshadowed here in the book of Job, where God really doesn't just send Job an answer. Instead, God comes. God comes to him. God comes to him. And in the gospel of Jesus, understand, God comes to us. Not in a whirlwind. Not with answers, the the questions that would just flatten us the way he flattens Job. But he comes to us in the person of Jesus. And what does he do? What does Jesus do? Jesus reveals to us God himself. Jesus lets us know who God is in the fullest possible way and what God intends for us. And what does Jesus show us? 
that the very center of everything, when God wants us to know his own heart, when God wants us to know how he feels about us, when God wants to answer our question of why must we suffer, what do we get? We get God himself. We get Jesus on a cross. Do you understand that? It's just the mystery of the gospel. That God reveals himself as, as a man of sorrows, as one who knows suffering, who's acquainted with grief. The gospel of Jesus reveals that God is not the one who causes us to suffer, but God is the one who suffers for us and with us. I, I, I just don't see at all because of Jesus. I don't, I don't see God as the one up in heaven, you know, just deciding, you know, who's going to have the next miscarriage, you know. I don't see God working that way. I don't see God up there sitting on his hands, either wringing his hands, you know, with nothing to do about our suffering. No, no. God comes. God suffers for us. God suffers with us. This is the gospel. Jesus himself, who said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus himself, who said, if you really want to be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. He did not promise you a way that would be absent of suffering. He just demonstrates that when you suffer, you will never suffer alone. Your suffering will never be without meaning because your suffering will never be without the presence of Jesus with you. He suffers for us and he suffers with us. In the gospel of Jesus, one more thing, it demonstrates that suffering is not something that God wills into existence. Suffering is something that God wills out of existence. The scripture reveals to us in the end, God will come and God will make everything right that's wrong with the world. And he says there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more pain. And he himself shall wipe away all the tears from our eyes. A lot of things we don't understand about suffering. We understand this much. God is the one who is going to wipe away all our tears. God is the one who is going to will it out of existence. One day. In the meantime, you'll have trouble, me too. In the meantime, you will suffer, me too. Sometimes worse than you ever imagined possible and longer than you dreamed. You will have trouble. But I'm telling you, in the midst of your suffering, it may be long but you'll never be alone. You'll never be without faith. You'll never be without hope. You'll never be without Jesus. Pray with me. Jesus, we understand that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us, and we praise you for your faithfulness. But Lord God, in our suffering, it seems that sometimes we are tempted to leave you. It seems that we are tempted to forsake you, Lord. We become so weary. We become so tired, so bewildered, so confused. We just want our life back. It's hard for us to accept, Lord, that life itself may now permit this kind of pain and this may be our new normal. Lord, it's just difficult. We want everything always to be easy. And you've never promised us that. Not in this life. So help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Lord, to continue to believe in the goodness of life and the truth of the gospel no matter what comes. 
The devil may come against us because he is our enemy and he will steal and he will kill and he will destroy. But Lord God, please let us surrender nothing to him that he doesn't have the power to take. Lord God, will you fortify our hearts? There are those in this room today who are battling very, very difficult circumstances. Lord, I pray that you will give them the miracle of fortitude, the miracle, Lord, of patience, the miracle, Lord, of simply standing up beneath the weight of these burdens. Lord God, I pray for all of the rest of us who are walking in the sunshine and enjoying a beautiful season of life. May we, Lord, recognize how ill-deserved we are with these blessings and how no matter what comes, Lord, we are your children and we will bless and praise your name. You are good to us, Lord God, always good. Help us, Lord, always to trust you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.